This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is God's word. Uh, Good morning. Welcome to City Church. Uh, Very glad that each and every one of you are here. I'm Ted Sin. I'm one of the pastors here, and I appreciate you. Uh, As a body, we're working our way through a series in the book of Titus um, in order to get some perspective on our current state as a church um, that's about to turn three years old in January. Our city group ministry is a little over three years old. The city worship uh, ministry is going to turn three mid-January. We're in Titus trying to get our biblical bearings um, uh, on who we are and and where we are, on who we need to be and sort of where we need to go. We've already covered the topics in this series of the church plant, the church planter, the elders and deacons. And from what I can tell, best as I can tell, there are three sermons left. There's two sermons sort of under this heading, uh, Advent and the Community of Faith. So today I'll begin to, even particularly the third point, start to unpack ideas that will really round out uh, next week. Um, Then after the holidays, um, I will preach one more sermon, Lord willing, from Titus uh, on mission in the church and how church plants are supposed to connect to other church plants in other places. And we'll talk uh, very encouragingly and hopefully about our plans for next year and the church plants that we will get to be a part of supporting and even, in some cases, uh, sending. Uh, So an all-too-brief introduction if you haven't been here, and a way-too-long introduction if you have. So I'm going to miss both audiences, which is essentially all of you, with this introduction. Uh, Paul has left Titus on the island of Crete, and uh, he's given him the assignment of establishing and solidifying the church plants that exist in the various cities of Crete. Titus is to do this work in two ways. He's to straighten out what is crooked through his teaching ministry. We'll focus on that significantly this morning. And he's to multiply his teaching ministry by appointing other elders, other pastors, other teachers. These elders, these pastors, these teachers are to have deep gospel character, that they're to have intense personal desire. And they're lastly, uh, they have to have the ability from God, the gift from God to lead and to teach. From what we can tell, there was a lot of crooked uh, thinking and crooked teaching in Crete, which intensified uh, Titus, uh, the need for him to work hard and to work faithfully and to work effectively. A quick review of chapter 1 would tell you that that there were many, uh, Paul emphasizes, many false teachers in the actual church bodies in these various cities 
in Crete. And these false teachers, they were liars, deceivers, empty talkers that for shameful gain and for shameful physical pleasure, they were teaching unhealthy or unsound or incomplete doctrine. They were promoting a licentious or, or a, a promiscuous culture. And, and in the end, the effect of these teachers and their teaching and those who followed their teaching, entire families were being upset, uh, overturned, ripped apart. And so in light of this uh, chapter 2, verse 1, in your worship folder, this, uh, this verse will make more sense if you haven't been around with that introduction. If you look, it says, but as for you, talking about Titus and the elders he appoints, teach what accords or what is fitting with sound or healthy, complete, well-grounded doctrine. Sound doctrine will promote a gracious, beautiful, loving environment. It will establish and solidify and strengthen entire families. And this will, of course, be a significant part of solidifying the various churches in the various cities of Crete and Orlando. So with this in mind, uh, let's look at uh, these three ideas in in terms of the body life and the character of these church plants. What needs to be, what will increasingly be, and how it comes to be. So we're going to talk about the character uh, of the body. We're going to talk about what body life should look like at City Church. We're going to talk about what needs to be. We're going to talk about what will increasingly be. And then we'll talk about how it comes to be. All right? So first, body life and character. What ought to be? If you turn your attention attention to chapter 2, 2 through 6, and if you kind of just look at it from 50,000 feet, there's a few things about the church plants in Crete that will stand out, similar to our uh, similar to our church plant here. First, the bodies of believers could be broken down into four distinct yet interdependent groups. Four distinct yet interdependent groups. Older men, verse 2. Older women, verse 3. Young women, verse 4. Younger men, uh, verse 6. Again, from 50,000 feet, each of these distinct uh, yet interdependent groups needed sound doctrine or sound teaching to be applied to them in unique ways. And, and we'll explore what I mean by this in a minute. But at the same time, although they needed the unique application of Scripture to who they were in the body, they all needed to learn more about and they all needed more self-control. Self-control is mentioned for all four groups. Again, tells us a little something about the island of Crete and maybe our culture uh, today. So we're going to quickly run through these four groups talking about what ought to be. And as we do, you figure out uh, where you are and where you fit. The male or female part should be pretty reasonable to understand on your own. Um, the younger and older part's just going to really be up to you figuring that part out, okay? I would never be so foolish as to try and help you figure that one out. The first group that Paul mentions, so just dig in. Let's look at the worship folder. The first group is the gray beards of the flock. Look down at verse 2. Older men are to be, or they ought to be, sober-minded, so clear-headed, dignified, which means serious, uh, self-controlled. Here it is. Here's the word that's going to show up for every group. And, of course, this this word uh, does mean to not be governed, to not be tossed to and fro by fleshly passions. But but the word of all the words translated self-control in the New Testament, and there are multiple, uh, this one used in Titus 2 emphasizes having a sound mind more than any other. This is what self-control is. It's it's making well thought out and measured choices instead of just doing what feels good. It's, it's, it's making a thought out choice instead of 
following one's passions or what one's passions calculates would feel good. Fleshly passions, to be more specific. Keep going. An older man ought to be sound in mind, but he also uh, should be uh, sound or healthy or whole in faith and in love and in steadfastness. So the patriarchs of the room, um, uh, those who are the older, older men, they, they are to be examples to the rest of the body. Uh, they're to be examples to the rest of the body and how they relate to God and how they relate to other people and how they relate to ultimate reality and relation to God. Older men are to be sound in faith. They're to set the example for trusting him and trusting his gospel. Older men are to be sound in love. This is relationship to others. They're, they're to be sound in love, sacrificing their agenda in order to serve other people. Older men are to be sound in steadfastness in relationship to ultimate reality. They're to have endurance. They're to have hope. We're going to talk a lot about this in the third point and next week. But, but for now, older men are to set the example of what it looks like to allow the realities of the Christian's future, to allow those realities to give perspective on the trials and the temptations of the here and now. This is what an older man, an older man this is who he is to be. Uh, a brief note, according to Titus, the difference between elders or pastors and teachers and older men, the difference is not found in character. It's found in calling and competencies. Older men, all of these various words in chi- Titus chapter 2 are found for the elders in First Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. The difference between an older man and an elder is that an elder is called to serve God in the local body as a pastor. An older man is called to serve God with a different calling that builds his kingdom in very special and unique ways. An elder is given competencies and gifts by God to lead and to teach, but an older man is given different gifts, different competencies that he is to use to invest in God's kingdom. The difference is not character. Just because in the last three weeks, if you're an older man, you learn that you don't have the gift of teaching or the gift of leading, or you don't have the desire to do it, doesn't mean the character bar is lower for you in Jesus's church. Same place. It's just deep, mature character. Second grouping, verse three, older women likewise are to be or ought to be reverent in behavior. This means not saucy, not flippant, uh, not rude, but, but respectful, respectable in their behavior. Uh, older women are to not be slanderers, not malicious uh, gossips, um, just for kicks and giggles. Uh, the Greek word here is diabolos, which is translated devil. The uh, older women are not to be devilish as gossips, accusers, scandal mongers, scandal promoters with time on their hands. They are not to get involved in gossip and scandal, nor are they to be slaves to much wine. They're they're not to be enslaved to, not to be bound up in, not to be under the control of alcohol, specifically wine. Doesn't say anything about martinis, so you're okay there, but um, joking. Not to be under the control of alcohol. Older women, Wise, mature, godly, pace-setting older women don't take too many sips or gulps so that they're under the control of alcohol. And when they do decide to drink, they don't take that first sip and that first gulp because they need it. Like the elders of the church, when it comes to alcohol, older women can take it or leave it. And when they take it, they don't need it. 
So two things an older woman should not use her mouth for, gossip and excessive drinking. And now this is the work they should employ their mouths in. They are to teach what is good, verse 4, and so train the young women. Uh, the, the word for train here is, is more like our concept of coaching. Of course, it includes teaching because it says they're supposed to teach what is good, but training is coaching. It's this ongoing relationship where both parties are on the same team, where one has clear authority over the other and can even discipline the other if that's necessary. But the one in authority only wins when the one they are leading succeeds. Older women are to walk alongside live life with, pour into, and sacrifice for young women in the body of faith. So group number three, young women. And remember, the character and the calling of a young woman has to be resembled in the life and modeled by the older woman, or the older woman is not a qualified teacher and trainer, okay? The older woman models and trains and coaches and disciples young women in this, verse 4, the second half of it, to love their husbands and to love their children. Biblical love is not primarily an emotion. It's a decision. It's a decision to serve and to sacrifice and to decrease. It's a decision and an action to give up your life and surrender for the life of another. Sometimes emotions will follow, but biblical love defined by Jesus says the greatest love is when one friend lays down his life for another friend. Young women are to love their husbands and to love their children. Uh, Keep going. They're to be, or they ought to be, self-controlled. Again, same word we've already talked about. Pure, which is uh, chaste and holy and innocent, talking about how a young woman handles her sex life. Working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands. Now, of course, the Bible does not say that every woman has to be married to be valuable and effective in God's kingdom. In fact, Paul teaches the exact opposite of that in 1 Corinthians 7. And of course, the Bible does not say that every woman has to stay at home and live inside and not own shoes, okay? The Bible does not say that it is wrong for a woman to have a career outside the home. This is what the Bible does say. If a woman decides to get married, if a woman uh, believes that God is calling her to get married, if, if, if that marriage is the most advantageous and effective place for her to live in God's kingdom, if that is her call, then she must be kind to her husband and submissive to her husband. Place her mission under the mission of her husband as he places the mission of their family under the mission of God as the elders and overseers are leading it in the church. And she must most literally be devoted to the home. This word is less about work and it's more about devotion and orientation. The book of Titus joins the book of Proverbs and says that a woman who is called to marriage is to have a homeward orientation. Finally, uh, the fourth grouping in the community of faith, uh, younger men. So just to keep track, Titus, the church planter, he is to teach the older men, the not-so-fresh women, Literally, that's what the older woman means. That's what young woman means. Fresh, new, not so fresh, not so new. You can figure it out. 
Titus is to teach the older men, the not-so-fresh women who are supposed to teach the fresh women, and Titus is supposed to teach the younger men. Pick up in verse 6. Likewise, um, I had so many jokes about expiration dates and whatnot, but I'm holding off right now. <laughs> Self-control. My kids asked me this week if I was older or younger, and Maddie's like, Dad, why are you losing hair just in that one spot right there? So evidently, I'm making that transition. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's it. If you're keeping track, not that any of us would be, but if you are, the older men are to be six things. The older women are to be four things now, and they need to have been seven things at some point in their life. The younger women are to be seven things uh, Things, uh, three of which include submitting to, being kind to, and working at home for. The young man who is to do one thing. One thing we can't even do. (laughs) Self-control. 1,900 years, some things never change. It, It is one word in the Greek but it is pregnant with meaning. Paul is thinking of the control of the temper, the control of the tongue, the control of ambition and greed, the control and the mastery of bodily appetites like eating, drinking, and sex. Paul is telling the younger men that self-control is the beginning of. It's the foundation for evolving into being an older man. That this is the key. This is the foundation, not driven by fleshly passions and appetites, but living under control and on purpose and with discipline. So this is what ought to be. This is what needs to be. This is what has to be in order for the cities of Crete to be won by the gospel, in order for the city of Orlando, the city beautiful, for it to be won by the gospel of Jesus. This needs to be true of City Church and the other great churches around us. With that in front of us, let's turn now to the fantastic news, and I literally mean that, of what will be. What will be. Second, body, life, and character. What will be. First of all, good news. Incredibly hopeful, true, wonderful news. This character will happen in the body of faith. It will be. It is what will be in the lives of God's people. There will, over time, be more and more self-control in God's people. There will be more and more reverence and holiness and love and kindness and selflessness in God's children. It has to be this way. Look down at verses 11 and 12 with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. There's the connection to the previous 11 verses. The gospel, Jesus, the grace of God is training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. All right, think about this. We tend to compartmentalize the biblical word salvation, We primarily think of salvation being saved as a past 
tense reality, referring to that time in the past when we repented and believed for the first time. And in that moment in time, God forgave us for the debt that we owed him. And in that moment in time, God declared us righteous and holy and perfect in his sight. And all of this because of Jesus. We tend to think of being saved, salvation language, bringing salvation for all people. We tend to think past tense, talking about the penalty for sin. And we sometimes think of being saved in future terms, that one day God will come back in glory, the third advent, and he will save us from death, disease, and decay, those things caused by sin. This passage is not talking about a past salvation or a future salvation. It's talking about a present tense salvation, a present tense power, a present tense work that saves us from the power or the bondage or the slavery of sin. Good news, salvation now from living selfishly, self-centeredly, out of control lives. Look at it again, verse 12. The grace of God is training us, coaching us, developing us in two ways. First, we're saying no, we're, we're denying, we're disowning ungodliness and worldly passions. We're saying no to living life as if God's not real and he's not watching and he doesn't have a paradigm for how we live our lives. And secondly, the gospel is training us, it's coaching us, it's disciplining us, it's discipling us, present power right now to live or say yes to self-control, yes to upright, holy, just, righteous, godly lives. Look at what it says in the present age, present tense grace, present tense salvation. So verses 2 and following describe what ought to be, and 11 and 12 tells us that it will be. Part of God's grace and part of God's saving work is to train us that in the first advent, Jesus appeared in grace 2,000 years ago, not just to satisfy God's wrath, not just to defeat Satan, not just so that we can be declared righteous, not just so that we can spend eternity in the physical presence of God, but also in order that we might right now, today, be changed, transformed, renewed, made new. This is fantastic news and reason to rejoice if we can begin to get our minds around what it is saying. It is saying that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, not just the penalty of sin and not just the presence of sin, but right now the proclamation and the person and the power of Jesus right now is what we need to be delivered from present tense sin. To the man who knows his porn addiction is killing his marriage, to the woman who knows her online relationship is killing her marriage, to the woman who knows her gossip is destroying her friendships, to the college student who can't stop drinking or start eating, to the old man who is bitter and grumpy and selfish and can't seem to stop. Jesus is saying this, I'm saving my brothers and my sisters right now from the power of indwelling sin. It's good news. We don't have to be selfish or as selfish anymore. With this in mind, look down at 14. Jesus gave himself for us on 
behalf of us. What does it say? It says to redeem us, to release us by paying a ransom, to set us free, to liberate us. What is he liberating us from? The Bible talks about redemption from so many things. If you look across the pages of scripture, it says that we're being redeemed from slavery and bondage to the dominion of darkness. We're being redeemed from the curse of the law and the wrath of God. We're being redeemed from uh, having to pay the price ourselves for our sin. We're redeemed from having to earn God's love and to merit our own righteousness. But what does he say in verse 14? What are we also redeemed from? From all lawlessness, lawless deeds, every sin, wickedness. Jesus gave himself. He died on the cross in order that he might purify or cleanse for himself a people, go down to the end of the sentence, who are zealous for good works. Present tense, right now, eager, ardent, fiercely passionate about doing good being what needs to be in the community of faith. A big part of the gospel, according to the Bible, is this. The character that needs to be is not just the character that we have imputed to us in the righteousness of Christ, but it is the character that will increasingly be in our lives. You can take it to the bank. It's part and parcel of the redemption and the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ by the grace that has appeared, that has epiphanied, that has advented 2,000 years ago in Christ. Now, this is fantastic news if you understand what I'm telling you. It's not just that God adores us and loves us and sees us as beautiful, but he's actually making us beautiful by his gospel power right now as you sit in your chairs. It's happening. But with this good news, I have to give you a brief caution. I want you to consider what is implied in the concept of training in verse 12. Consider what is directly taught by the Apostle Paul in multiple other places in Scripture. This should also be encouraging if you hear what I'm saying. This is an ongoing process. This is not a one-and-done sort of thing. This is a path. It's a work. God has decided in his sovereignty that that for his purposes, that he is going to make this part of our salvation, this aspect of our redemption, he has decided that this is going to last a lifetime. Paul, in, in another passage, he likens our growth in character. He likens our growth in love. He, he says the growth that God gives us is the growth of metamorphosis. It's from one slight degree of glory to another that we will not arrive in, on this side of heaven. That's why heaven's called glorification. The other day we were encouraging uh, Braden our five-year-old son, we were telling him he should eat more carrots. And we used on him the logic that every parent uses on a five-year-old. We told him that if he ate more carrots, he would be able to see better. Thank you. And uh, we told him he'd be able to see better. And, and, um, and we told him if he ate more carrots that, I mean, seeing better is not really uh, that big of a deal to a five-year-old. But So I had to translate it into his language. You'll be a better soccer player. You're going to be a better ninja. You're going to be a better superhero. Uh, you're gonna, whatever it is you want to do, you're going to be better if you'll eat the carrots, okay? And uh, he started eating baby carrot after baby carrot directly from the public's bag. 
all right? And, and, I, and every time he would grab a carrot, it took me a while to figure out what he was doing. He would grab a carrot, he would plunk it into his mouth. He was facing directly south across the kitchen. If you've been to our house, he turned directly to the east and he looked through the living room and through uh, the dining room and through the window by the front door. And every time he popped a carrot into his mouth, he would look and he would squint and he would focus. And he was looking for discernible, measurable change. He was hoping with every bite that his vision would get better. That is a lot like me and my spirituality. I check my growth. I check my sanctification. I check it way too often. And I don't understand the way Jesus said he's going to grow me. I look for perceptible, measurable, quantifiable changes in way too short a period of time. The Bible calls our character, what is described in verses 2 through 6, that's character. It calls it fruit. You don't plant a seed, water it, throw a light bulb on it, and 20 minutes later expect a grapefruit. It just takes much longer than that. God has promised to change us and to save us from sin, the sin itself. And he has said that his ordinary way of changing us is from one slight degree of glory to the next, an imperceptible, too small to measure, single daily changes. If we spread out the time between checkups, if you will, we will be shocked at what God can do through minor adjustments day in and day out. We were sitting at the kitchen table yesterday morning, and Maddie, my nine-year-old, was, uh, was reading her, I brought it with me, her kindergarten memory book to Braden. For those of you listening to the podcast, it's a red book, and it says my kindergarten memory book. Okay, um, the kindergarten memory book, and she's reading it to Braden, my, my current kindergartner. And, and I, I love how the book is laid out. On page one, it says, this is how I wrote my name in August. And there's a line here where Maddie wrote her name. And then there's a picture of her here. And if you can see the adorable little thing, she's missing one tooth on the bottom. She has a massive backpack that's about to swallow her up. And her lunchbox is way bigger than the, than the lower half of her body. <laughs> but this is her in August of 2007. And this is how she writes. Each month, there is another page, another checkup, if you will, another snapshot of my daughter's life. And in each instance, you can see minor changes in her as she grows. And you can see minor changes in her penmanship as she writes her name. But if you compare August of 2007, let's say, to March of 2008, you will see significant difference in her ability to write, significant difference in the way she looks. She has no teeth in her mouth. Her backpack fits on her back. Her face has slimmed down significantly. Nothing that even her mom and I could have noticed in a single day, but over the span of six or seven months, massive difference. That's the way God changes us. Go back to verse 12. The gospel is training us to say no to worldly, fleshly lusts, and it's training us to say yes or to live or to be self-controlled. The verb tense for training is an ongoing present active tense. Every day you read it, it means today God is doing this in you. Right now, God's grace is presently training us, and tomorrow his grace will be presently training us. Last week, his gospel power was presently training us. 
us. He has already justified us. He has already declared us righteous in his sight by the righteousness of Christ given to us in the gospel. God can't possibly love us anymore. He's delighted with us. He sees us as though we've behaved like Christ our entire lives. He sees us as though tomorrow we will behave like Jesus forever and ever. He sees those who have faith in Christ as reverent, holy, just, pure, sound in faith, hope, and love. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None declared righteous by his character and his promise. He can't abandon the work he started in us. In order to keep us humble, in order to keep us prayerful, in order to keep us utterly dependent on on him, in order for us to not become proud, in order for us to not become self-righteous, in order to keep us needy, he changes us ever so slowly. He makes us just and righteous, holy and reverent, submissive and kind bit by bit over time so that every morning I will wake up and need his gospel and his grace. And I will cry out, for him to save me, not from the penalty of my sin or the one day presence of sin, but from the power of sin right now. This is the character that needs to be, and this is the good news of the character that absolutely will be. Finally, we'll turn down to verse 13. Let's talk about how this body life and this character, how it comes to be. Now, of course, if you've been paying attention to point two, the ultimate answer for how it comes to be is God, okay? It's a very Presbyterian answer. I appreciate that. You know, he started it. He'll finish it. He promised to do it. He's going to do it, okay? How does it come to be? God does it, okay? Thank you for that, okay? With that said, and that's true, looking at it from another angle, how does this come to be in our hearts and our lives? How do we experience the work of God in this place? How do we increasingly say no to worldly fleshly passions and lusts? How do we increasingly, how are we motivated to live self-controlled lives to say yes to godly living? How does God do this work in us? What does it, what does it feel like and look like to be me as God does his promised work of salvation and redemption in me? How does he sovereignly empower me to engage in this process? I, I would restate the question this way. Paul, Paul writes in Philippians that he is confident what I just preached, that God will bring to completion the work of salvation he started in us. It will be. And then a few verses later, he writes, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling for or since or because it is God who works in you. Because God's working in you, work it out. Both God is working in you. This is what God's doing. He's, he's both causing you to want and to work, to desire and to do his good pleasure. So, so as God goes first, And as he works in us, how do we work it out? From from where we sit, engaged in the process by God, how do we work it out? I hope you're ready for the answer, even if you don't understand the question. This is how it comes to be. We wait. We learn to wait. We learn to watch. We learn to long. And we learn to yearn. Look down at chapter 2, verse 13. This is what we are doing as the grace of God trains us, as the grace of God disciples us in the present age. This is what we're doing. Very next verse. We are waiting 
for our blessed hope. We're waiting. We're longing. We're yearning for that happy, happy expectation. I'll illustrate it this way and then we'll be done and we'll pick up this same concept again next week. During our first year out of college in the real world, Trisha and I were dating long distance and then we were eventually engaged long distance. I lived in Colorado Springs. Uh, she lived in Atlanta. Um, I flew a ton for my job and I was always uh, to uh, establish layovers in Atlanta over the weekend and charge my clients for it. Um, but only a couple of times did Trisha actually fly out to Colorado Springs um, and, and see me and my friends there in that place. And so as you can imagine by seeing her now, um, I, I was smitten by Trisha. My, my, um, um, she, she was so far out of my league in every regard, and, and I loved her deeply. And the first, um, uh, the few times that she, she flew out to see me in Colorado Springs, my entire week was altered, uh, changed, rearranged, infused with hope and expectation. I would get a haircut, I would shave both sideburns. I would save every penny that week that I could so I could take her to a nicer restaurant. I would beg my roommates to join me in cleaning the house and trying to find the bottom of the kitchen sink. I, I would clean the shag carpet. That's how old the house was we rented. The shag carpet, I would clean it until something would clog the vacuum, usually a piece of pizza or something. I, I would spray Lysol and cologne everywhere before the days of Febreze. I, I would drive to the airport to get there hours in advance. Trisha would call me, uh, collect from a payphone. This is before cell phones. She would call me in Atlanta right before boarding the plane. And three hours later, I knew, Lord willing, she would land. So I would hang up the phone and I would wait 10 to 15 minutes to make sure that, um, that, that the, the flight was not delayed or make sure something didn't happen, that she was actually on the plane. And 10 or 15 minutes later, I would jump in my car, my freshly cleaned car with the fragrant pine tree ornament hanging from the rearview mirror. And I would drive like an old grandma to the airport because I didn't want to risk getting into an accident. And I didn't want to be pulled over by a policeman for speeding or having him profile me for something that I did not do. Maybe a friend of mine did in my car. And, um, and I didn't go too slow because if you go too slow, that brings about suspicion, you know. So you got to go like right between the 35 and 40, you know. And so I'd go to the short-term lot even though I was going to be there for a very long time. And I'd park and I'd walk quickly with my heart racing. I'd go straight to the gate. And this is the old days, a lot less security. You could, you could actually go to the gate and I would wait and I'd watch and I'd long and I'd yearn for her appearing. A few times, it would start to snow. And back then, every flight to Colorado Springs went through Denver. And so the chances of her being delayed or the chances of her flight being canceled went through the roof. And of course, I didn't have a phone. And there's just so much that could go wrong. And I would just sit in that chair and I would look out on the runway. I'd be oblivious to the people around me who were there for the six flights coming in before her flight. And, <laughs> and I would watch and I would wait and I would yearn and I would long, and I would pray for her appearing. I remember one time they announced that United Flight such and such and so and so had landed over the speaker system. And again, no fancy electronic boards, right? 
where you could see where the actual plane was in the sky. You could actually see the pilot picking his nose from some camera uh, way up in the sky. Uh, they announced over the intercom, and I actually see the United flight taxiing, and I had to go to the bathroom so bad. I was literally concerned that, that, that I might mess myself, and so I chose to not go to the bathroom because I did not want to miss her beautiful, glorious, loving smile when she walked off that plane. If I go to the bathroom, someone could beat me up. I could slip and fall. I could step in something. There's just no way I'm running that risk. And if you know me and my issues, I am not speaking in hyperbole here. Do you see the point of the illustration? You see how my entire life was changed, altered, lived more intentionally. Do you see how every choice mattered as my life was defined by joyful yet painful waiting, watching, longing, yearning, leaning into and looking forward to my lover's arrival, her epiphany, her, her advent, her coming, her appearing. Look at verse 13. This is what we are doing when God is training us. This is the posture that we're in while his grace is saving us. Look again. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory, the splendor, the majesty, the grandeur, the brightness and the brilliance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And why are we waiting for him? Because 2,000 years ago, he came for us and he gave himself for us to redeem us from everything that has to do with sin, including lawlessness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, teach us how to wait. Teach us how to watch. Teach us how to meet every temptation with the understanding of the first advent and the advent to come. Infuse into our lives right now by your gospel and your spirit. Infuse into our lives right now a willingness to wait for the life that you give us and to not try and find life in cheap substitutes. I pray, God, that you would forgive us because we have not lived this way. We thank you, Jesus, for our righteousness in you by faith. We thank you, Jesus, that right now as we sat in this place, those who love you and know you are being transformed into your likeness. Give us rest, we pray.